This week, it's all about the N-word. We start by discussing how neoliberalism can kill a city. Then we'll talk about how neoliberalism can deprive students of an education. And we'll wrap up by describing how neoliberalism can even destroy capitalism. Yes, this week it's about the N-word that everyone refuses to say in the media, neoliberalism. Cancelled by corporate cancel culture since 1996, which explains why we are completely listener-supported and why I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. This is hell. Look, we all know Uber sucks. Or does it? A lot of jobs were lost due to the financial collapse of 2008, and Uber is a convenient alternative for those who are suddenly unemployed and desperate. Many are grateful that Uber or other apps within the gig, gig economy were there for them when their regular employment no longer was. But ask many of those same Uber drivers what they thought of their experience driving once they've left the platform and found a more traditional job, and they will likely, but not always, express a sigh of relief for leaving behind the poor pay and work conditions and the even worse benefits. Sure, they may show their appreciation for Uber being there for them in a time of need, but the fact that Uber benefits from such desperation tells you something not only about the ride-sharing platform, but the gig economy more generally. In a few minutes, we will talk about the how and why Uber exists and the platform as a political idea when we speak with geographer Katie J. Wells, co-author of Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber and the Fall of the City, which he wrote with Kafi Otto and Declan Cullen. Dr. Wells is a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University. Katie is a postdoctoral uh, Fritz fellow with Georgetown University's new Tech and Society Initiative and based in the Communication, Culture, and Technology program. She is also an affiliated fellow with the Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation in the Georgetown Global Cities Initiative. Katie studies how tech affects the way we live in cities, and especially how we govern them. She studies how labor platforms shape the way we live in cities. She has published findings on data surveillance, labor rights, and public policy in academic journals, and discussed the real-time impacts of her research in 90-plus media stories. She has lived in D.C. for nearly 20 years, so she has an insight on what happens within D.C. Find out more about Katie at katiejwells.net. Follow Katie at katiejwells on twitter.com. She will be appearing at Washington, D.C.'s Politics and Prose on Tuesday, August 22nd. That's tomorrow. She will be joined by co-author Kafi Otto, 
who is an associate professor of urban studies at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. They will be in conversation about their book with a past guest on our show, Malcolm Harris. Malcolm has called Disrupting DC invaluable. Another past guest, Devarian L. Baldwin, said Disrupting DC is wonderful, nuanced, a vital work of scholarship. Devarian was on the, on the show back in 2021 to talk about his book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, which is an interview that is currently available at thisishell.com with another 10 years of podcasts that are all absolutely free. Tomorrow's event with Katie Coffee and Malcolm starts at 7 p.m. and is free and open to the public and it's first come, first serve seating. You can find out more about tomorrow's event at politics-pros.com. Producing is Will Ippen. It's been a minute, Will. What's new about you? It's good to see you, Chuck. Good to see uh, you, too. Just got back from uh, my folks' place in the North Woods. Uh, it's kind of our annual version of what you guys do in Michigan. Um, my sister and brother-in-law, niece and nephew, come in from Denver, and everybody hangs out on the lake for a week. Up in northern Wisconsin? Yeah. On what lake? Uh, Fence Lake. Fence Lake? Is there yeah. a reason it's called Fence Lake? Is there, there a John Fence, or is there an actual fence? There's it. I, I can't remember the exact story behind it. I know it was sort of used in a fence-like fashion, like some sort of game thing that... Yeah, so oh, really? Ojibwe game thing I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'll get back to you on that. I, well, I, uh, <laughs> when I when I see you again uh, later this week, uh-huh. I'll bring in uh, the Traverse City, Michigan Record Eagle. They celebrated their 165th anniversary, and so they did a history of Traverse City area in Michigan, uh-huh. and it's all about the indigenous. Oh yeah, that's cool. It was really cool. It was very yeah. surprising and very eye opening and enlightening about what's going on in the pinky. Of the lower mission sure. of Michigan. Uh, so uh, thanks again to you, as well as producers Kat Jarvanen, Dan Kugler, Richard Norwood, contributors Seb Vooper, Ronaldo Magaldi, Jeff Dorchin for keeping the show humming while I was out on my annual vacation and out last week as I felt a bit under the weather, as seems to be the case every time I return from my vacation. Same thing happens after the end of the year holidays. I play with kids while visiting family during my summer and winter breaks. And as my doctor has pointed out to me, When I return, I inevitably come down with something from horrible colds to miserable flus to one time I actually had hand, foot, and mouth disease after playing with little kids. Yikes. That's the worst one you can get from kids. I know. I thought that was something only horses could get, but I (laughs) learned that was not the case. Did that lead to some soul-searching cleanliness and whatnot? It did. So uh, thanks again to everyone who contributes to the show and to all of you for listening and continuing to listen and showing your support for This Is Hell over the last year and a half and the many illnesses I've contracted as as well as the many operations, medical procedures, surgeries. It's been a really rough past 18 months for the show, and we appreciate you sticking it out with us. On that note, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... I mean, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> I mean, what, what is that uh, image? Is that an actual movie? Is there a movie? It sure is. <laughs> Does it, it star anybody we know? Uh, Martin Lawrence and Danny DeVito. <laughs> wow.
<laughs> yeah, I've <laughs> never that heard one of it slipped before. past me. Me too. I wonder why. Maybe straight to video. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so we will share uh, some of your question from Hell Answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Katie on Uber disrupting DC and what that means for all of us, no matter where we live. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is what to do if you can't face food on a hangover. Women's Health ran an article last week with the headline, Best Hangover Food, What to Eat to Recover After Drinking Alcohol. The article quotes award-winning nutritionist and author Christine Bailey saying that if you can't deal with food while hungover, quote, try to snack regularly the following day. If you can't face meals, stabilize your blood sugar and replenish depleted nutrients with snacks. Vitamin, certain B vitamins are depleted after heavy drinking, so consider a B vitamin complex and include foods naturally rich in B vitamins. Baked potato, banana, beans, leafy greens, eggs, chicken, nuts, and seeds. The article adds, Regular grazing on foods you love from the comfort of your sofa throughout the whole day? Yeah, that sounds more than okay. <laughs> That's some great journalism. It is. <laughs> I love the conversational tone. Um, that makes this week's hangover cure. If you can't handle an actual meal while hungover, take a B vitamin supplement and then snack on foods loaded with B vitamins such as baked potato, banana, beans, leafy greens, Eggs, chicken, nuts, nuts and, and seeds. seeds. <laughs> so that's the the like litany of stuff with of B vitamins in it. Yeah, exactly. I got a B vitamin complex just from reading that. <laughs> so we got an email from a listener named Phil. Phil writes, "Hi Chuck, hope you are fine." Yeah, me too. I listened uh, to your most recent interview with the Intercepts Ben Makuch about Ukraine, and I had some thoughts about it. The war in Ukraine is a difficult topic, and I believe you covered it perfectly with Nikolai Petro's with the Nikolai Petro interview some years ago. I have to clarify that I do have a bias for Russia, being from Russian descent. I'm really afraid one day that I'll be speaking Russian with my mother or brother, and I'll get assaulted, like is happening all over the place. Hence, I'm not neutral, and I admit it. War sucks. Only crazy people can support it. I have seen horrible videos about the war in Ukraine speaking Russian. I can get access to even more information than you can here in the States. Far right is far right. Russian neo-Nazis are the worst of the worst. However, I don't hear any opinion from almost anyone on the left against the war. I see the left waving with war flags in the West like they did in World War I. Where is the peace agenda? Could you please return me the hope that the left in the West still has brains and will pursue peace? Cheers, Phil. Phil, first, uh, Nikolai Petro was on the show way back in 2014 during the Maidan. Uh, he was on at the time to talk about an article he had just posted at The Nation that was titled Threat of Military Confrontation Grows in Ukraine. We shared that interview on Patreon during a series we did featuring past discussions on the show about Ukraine that we did earlier this year. Nikolai also has a new book out titled, and this is, sounds like a fascinating book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy 
can teach us about conflict resolution. Second, Phil, I appreciate your honesty, and not only to others like myself, but the courage to be honest about yourself. Being in fear of speaking Russian is an example of how much we are being pushed back into the madness of a Cold War mentality. Third, war does suck, and so do neo-Nazis, but I have no idea if Russian neo-Nazis are the worst neo-Nazis, although I certainly defer judgment to you, Phil, as you are a Russian. Fourth, I had no idea the left and the West cheered on war leading up to the First World War, and now I want to know more about that, too. Fifth, where's the peace agenda? I have no idea, Phil. I've been looking for it ever since 9-11 and cannot find it anywhere. I know I put it somewhere special, but I've looked everywhere, and so far, nothing. I found it around March 2003 during the world's largest anti-war protests ever, but then I misplaced it again. Finally, can I return hope that the left in the West still has brains and will pursue peace, Phil? Well, I don't know if I can return hope to you, Phil, but you can hope all you want. In fact, at times that seems like that's the only thing you can do, while profits from war benefit the rich and powerful who are safe from what they inhumanely call collateral damage, mere externalities that do not affect their precious bottom line. You too can email us at chuckatthisishell.com or message us via Facebook, Discord, Patreon, or what used to be Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio. And if you do, we will likely read whatever it is you have to say on air. Coming up, how and why Uber is what it is, and what it is is a threat to democracy. We'll share some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show. Also returning to the show, historian Dr. Sebastian Vupper has a new past inside the present when Seb provides the historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? This week, Seb breaks with his schedule and returns to the Hawaiian Islands again to take a look at what was lost in the fire at Lahaina, why, the t- why that town matters deeply to the Hawaiian people, and what circumstances corresponded to the devastating wildfires. Yeah, when I heard that town was, the first time I heard the town was historic and I saw an image, and it just looked like, you know, a regular western street, a European street. I was wondering if what they meant by historic was its colonial history. Right. You know, so I have no idea if it had a, you know, previous history with indigenous history in Hawaii or not. I have no idea. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. And nothing seemed to have the kind of viral spread the gig economy had. That is, until an actual virus, COVID-19, came along. Shortly after the 2008 financial collapse, suddenly Uber seemed to be everywhere. And not only Uber, but an entire array of apps in what at the time was being called the sharing economy. But was in reality, as today's guest quotes past guest Doug Henwood, a classically neoliberal response to neoliberalism. Here to help us have a more nuanced sense of what Uber and the gig economy really is geographer Katie J. Wells is co-author of Disrupting DC, The Rise of Uber and the Fall of the City, which she wrote with Kafi Ato and Declan Cullen. Welcome to This Is Hell, Katie. 
Chuck, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating book, and it reminded me of an article, or yeah, an article, but a conversation we had with a past guest, the economist Rob Larson, uh, about the political project of crypto. And we'll get into that mm. in just a little bit. You write in December 2011, Washington, D.C. became the sixth municipality in the United States to receive its introduction to Uber's famed car service, a service allowing customers to both hail and pay for a luxury sedan using their smartphones, as had been the case in San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, and New York City. Uber's expansion in the nation's capital was not without controversy. Instead, within a month, local regulators targeted Uber in a highly publicized uh, sting for operating without a livery license. Six months later, the company faced additional resistance from D.C. council members uh, concerned about the company's impact on the local taxi industry. Over the course of a year, D.C. becomes became not only the first city in the country where Uber faced resistance from municipal legislators, but also the first city where such resistance was overcome and anti-Uber legislation defeated. So Uber faced a lot of resi- resistance, yet succeeded. From the very Beautifully, from, masterfully. Yeah, but from the very beginning, considering how much investors had invested in Uber, how much money they had, from the beginning, do you think it was too big to fail? Was there any way it was ever going to be stopped? I'm so bad at predicting things, right? I never thought Trump would be elected, but I will say this. I think the question is not, was it too big to fail, but I worry that the cities were too broken to fix, right? That that was a mentality, that there was this urban crisis. And so Uber sort of in the wake of the Great Recession took all this money and capital, Saudi money, soft bank money, and sort of saw a problem, right? Around urban transit, underemployment, right? And offered a solution. That's really interesting that it wasn't that it was too big to fail, but the cities were too broken to fix. And I mean, I don't think they were too broken, right? But that is a mentality, right? I mean, this is not the banks, right? We saw banks were too big to fail, right? Right. And this was a thought that the people believed the cities were too broken to fix. I don't believe that, right? But that was sort of, I think, the mentality. It was more based on perception than reality? Yeah, of course it's not too broken to fix. Come on. Because that that's the where do you think people get that perception? Do you think that perception is driven by the media? Do you think that's driven by what do you think that perception is driven by? I mean, I you know, Astra Taylor has a New York Times piece yesterday in the Sunday, you know, opinion section, you know, as a it's like a forthcoming piece from a book. And it's sort of about the calling us living in this age of insecurity. And I think that really resonates, right? It's one thing to live in an age of inequality, but there's also a real sort of, there's a sensation, there's a, you know, a feeling to this world we live in. And that was what we didn't expect to find. Um, and we didn't know what to do with, but we heard workers, policymakers, residents talking about their very low expectations for urban life. You write that Uber's success in D.C. and elsewhere reflect and shape what we expect from cities and from urban politics more generally. Do you think that was Uber's intent? And did it shape cities they want the way they wanted to? Or is the way they've shaped cities an outcome of unintended and unforeseen consequences? That's a really good question, Chuck. Um, I wish I knew what their motives were or why they did what they did. Um, my gut is that there was, uh, my gut is that there was not a real sort of focus on those low expectations right within the company, but I'm not a business person. Um, and so I can't sort of make sense of how they ran their company and their projects the way they did. What they did do though, right from the very get-go is have a very real disrespect for this idea of common rule, 
or common law, the idea that we would come in and make decisions about how we share contested land together. And that was very much the anathema to their project, which was to steamroll and build, you know, it's like, I don't know, you were talking about hand, foot, mouth, right? Like kids getting together, toddlers, like sometimes kids are quite rude, right? And they take all the Legos and they want to build their city the way, you know, they're building the way they want to do it. Well, I think of Uber as a very badly trained toddler, right? It just wanted to say me, 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 and I want it my way. Um, and there wasn't a real practice for democratic politics or respect for it anyway. A badly trained toddler. That is a very good description of what it seems like to me. One of the things that really confused me about Uber's introduction here to, into Chicago, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can shed some light on this, uh, the city of Chicago, the Chicago Transit Authority, shortly after Uber was introduced here to the city, it didn't take very long of a period of time for the CTA to go into an agreement with Uber, giving them access to, for instance, the parking areas around and within CTA train stations. Uh, I never understood why you would go into a partnership with something that seems to mm -hmm. be a competitor with you. Mm -hmm. What uh, Can you shed some light on that? Why would a, why would a transit agency go into a partnership with a private mm -hmm. competitor. Right. So there's many, this is sort of a multifaceted answer. Okay. There were many reasons why, see, you know, the Chicago Transit Authority, as well as many other places in the U.S., right, went into agreement with them. Part of it was, you know, there were these arguments from these companies. Look, we're going to increase transit ridership. Okay. We're going to decrease congestion. We are going to reduce pollution. This is an environmental, you know, savior for your city, we are really gonna help you function. Think of us as an extension of public transit, right? Um, and then there was also the reality around paratransit, which we got into a bit in our book, which is that a lot of these cities um, and public transit agencies were struggling to fulfill their missions, right? And so there was a thought like, well, we can't totally do this, but perhaps if we create partnerships, we will you know, do the thing, that mission we really wanted to do, but do it with this other entity. And there has been, right, for almost 20 years before, 30 years, you know, a market turned toward public-private partnerships in the U.S. as well as abroad. And so a lot of policymakers, from what we can tell, believed not that they were getting in bed with some nefarious character, but that, you know, they were working on a similar mission to make transit more accessible, right? Travis Kalanick, you know, used to say, oh, he wants, you know, to offer transit like running water. Um, as sort of a public infrastructure. Of course, that like totally was not what ended up happening. Um, and I think that was sort of a sin. I think these, um, you know, ride hail companies were quite cynical in their promising that um, or even believing that they could do it. Um, but that I hope gives you a sense of how I think a lot of really good natured, you know, publicly minded policymakers made really bad partnerships with these folks. So was the city where the, these transit agencies around the United States that ended up being vulnerable to Uber, were they simply big, bloated, ineffective, inefficient government agencies, or were they simply underfunded? I mean, I would argue the latter, right? It's real, it, and not only underfunded, but they were under-resourced, right? It's really hard to govern things you can't see. It's really hard to make sense of stuff. So we've not, you know, we've underfunded them, but then we've also limited their ability to do anything in the future, right? Because even if they had the money, they don't even have this, you know, the resources to, um, to do anything. So it's sort of a perfect storm. You've got broken infrastructure and you've got this outside entity. It's like, hey, come on, I'll be your partner. 
But we argue in the book, right, that Uber sort of um, really cynically turns cities into its partner. That's one of the things we've discussed on the show in the past, why public-private partnerships don't work. In your opinion, why does the private sector so often dominate those relationships? In my opinion, why why does why do they dominate? Yes. Yeah, I mean, because it's an unequal relationship, right? Because we have underfunded cities, right, in many ways from the get-go of the United States. I mean, we've had inherently anti-urban congresses, right? And so these areas, you know, don't. it's not equal footing. I mean, it's the same relationship between nonprofits and philanthropists, right? I mean, you write it's these are tough relationships, right? If we think about family units, I mean, and you want to have some kind of democratic politics where you agree to the same rules in the house, you want folks to respect each other and come in on equal footing. You can't do that in these kind of unequal schemas. So, how has Uber shaped? mass transit, or even cities more generally, in ways that we may not recognize? Um, well, thankfully, we now have a decade of research to show us what a lot of us you know, suspected from the get-go, which is it does decrease public transit. Uber does when it enters a city, it now not uniformly, right? There is some thought about it actually can, there can be some positive impacts on bus transit, but only in limited areas and limited hours. On a whole the entrance of ride hailing decreases public transit, it increases congestion, it increases pollution, it increases idling, it creates havoc for for curbside management, it, you know, causes a problem for bike lanes, you know, and there also are real concerns about pedestrian safety and traffic fatalities. Um, Now, we don't have, you know, wholesale research yet in part because a lot of the data around this uh, workplace, the Uber driver workplace is really hidden, but there's a lot of thoughts that it's a really dangerous place for folks to work as Uber drivers. As you're saying earlier, uh, Uber had promised that what it was going to do was bring two cities less congestion. It was going to be good for the environment. But just on their surface, and again, I'm not that smart of a person, but on their surface, to me, it seems like there's no way that this could lead to less congestion. You are introducing new cars into the city. This, and these cars are running around empty half the time. Right. And they're, it, so it cannot be good for the environment. So on its face, it would seem to me like these are contradictions, if not lies, in what they were going to do. Why mm-hmm. do you, what does it say about cities when they fall for this kind of logic? It would seem like they were completely scammed or were they just so vulnerable to anything that they were vulnerable to scams? I mean, I assume it's the latter, right? I mean, these city, cities have limited like abilities to do what they want to do. To I mean, there is such fear of being seen as a dinosaur and not being seen as innovative, right? That a lot of policy leaders are willing to get in bed with these, you know, nefarious actors. But as you point out, however gratifying, you did not want to write a book that simply denounced Uber, you and your co-authors, I should say. What do we miss in our understanding of Uber or the gig economy at large if we simply denounce it, dismiss it, label it as bad? Yeah, then I think we miss sort of the more important question, which is how and why do these otherwise decent policymakers and residents and cities fall for this crap? What is it about the kind of places we've built and the kind of politics we've nurtured that allowed us to, you know, do this, um, you know, have this infatuation with Uber for the last decade? 
And what does it mean about where we're headed, you know, as a, as a population, what, what kind of places can we possibly build if we're allowing the American Disabilities Act to be whittled away? If we're, you know, not building out public transit, so we say, oh, Uber can just, you know, just take an Uber. Um, so we really worry about if we focus too narrowly on Uber as a problem and not as a symptom, then we miss the really bigger issues, right? About the kind of urban politics that have allowed this to grow. And the part- and that could allow other countries, you know, if we say, oh, Uber is just so bad, then we could be like, oh, but a different company would be so great. No, like we need to be, you know, thoughtful and careful. And we need to be uh, also concerned when you look at Uber or any part of the gig economy, uh, we should be concerned about other parts of what we might consider the common good. You write, uh, when the D.C. Metro was constructed in the 70s, uh, and you, you quote historian Zachary Schrag in the Great Society Subway, uh, writing that it represented a monument to confidence in the public realm. Like the Apollo mission or the creation of the National Endowment for the Arts, the capital's new transportation system embodied the ideals of the Great Society, a belief in the power of government to do good, a common-sense commitment to promoting public investments suited to the grandeur and dignity of the world's richest nation. Quoting Lyndon B. Johnson, Schrag adds, Metro was an attempt to build, quote, a place where the city of man serves not only the needs of the body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community. Is there any evidence to suggest or any sense that those are the exact reasons why Mass transportation was targeted for disruption, it, be, it being the pride of the community while mm-hmm. offering a common sense service publicly for the community. Was this a purposeful, do you ever get a sense that this was a purposeful libertarian ideological attack on a successful collective communal solution? That's a great question. And it's one that we can start to answer and tease out by thinking about the Koch brothers, and thinking about the deregulatory Um, campaigns that they ran in the 1980s and 90s against the taxi industry. We can also think about Malcolm Harris's work tracing out sort of the ideology of Silicon Valley and those sort of libertarian threads and fascist threads. Um, You know, there's a whole host of private entities and companies that sort of took up this belief that this community shenanigans, right, is the anathema of what we need, right? We need a capitalist empire, we don't need community or those kind of that bar, you know, common good bargaining. Um, and so, you know, when we think about Uber and who founded it and the Ayn Rand, you know, sort of beliefs that, you know, were at its heart. And now even, you know, it ties to Bradley Tusk, this political fixer, right, whose whole goals has been to disrupt government. Um, I think it is, I think think it is fair to say that the destruction of public transit um, could have been a um, a secondary goal, if not a primary one. Although, I mean, I am guessing here, okay. Um, but it seems like we could certainly draw a pretty powerful line from the Koch brothers to Uber, especially if we think about the role of Reason Magazine um, that were um, along the way. And you point out that Uber did more than offer an alternative to D.C.'s existing transportation regime. It offered an alternative view of the public realm itself. Unlike Johnson's Great Society and Uber's world, the public realm was defined less by confidence and ambition than by apathy and a deep cynicism. Rather than an expression of heightened expectations of a 
self-assured belief in the power of government to meet people's material and social needs, the rise of Uber expresses a set of lowered expectations, as you were mentioning earlier. Yet, despite these lowered expectations, I don't know, or maybe because of them, political campaigns promising tax cuts still have a high rate of success and cutting taxes, especially on the middle class, seems to be a bipartisan obsession. Do we hold the government responsible for failing public services without recognizing the role tax cuts play in infrastructure decay? And if that is the case, why do we not hold tax cuts at least partly responsible? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's why campaigns to raise taxes are so unsexy. And I can tell you in DC, you know, about 15 years ago, we tried to raise taxes on the city's top income earners. And it was an uphill battle. We eventually were able to do it, right? But a lot of people say, why give the city more money if they can't do anything effectively with it, right? There's this general sense that like government is broken. So why give it money to fix? It's just so irritating to me. The government's broke. Of course it is. But I mean, you know, you can also, here, I'll give you another, um, there's another, here's another piece, shout out. The New Yorker had a piece about someone Hunt, some Leah Hunt, someone, some famous, not famous, I'm sorry, some fabulously wealthy heiress um, who's been involved in supporting resource generation and other sort of organizing leftists, very far leftist, wonderful outputs of the Occupy movement. Um, And, you know, resource generation is something that's been this incredible organizer for wealthy young people to try to get them involved in politics and also, I think, change the way we think about taxes, about, you know, taking them back as this is our shared thing, you know, we we collectively invest in this. And I think to the extent to which um, congestion pricing, like road pricing, well, is part of the conversation in some urban areas, I think that's really useful. I think it's useful to say, oh, these roads are our shared, you know, resource. Um, maybe we should price them differently. Wealthier people should, you know, pay more. Or people who use them more. Or Amazon has 16 trucks going down the street every day should pay more. Um, so I do hope that we can shift the conversation around taxes and shared resources a bit. One of the excuse, one of the reasons that Uber supporters uh, gave for Uber being introduced into cities is that the taxi cab uh, industry had ossified. It was no longer uh, possible to have any kind of innovation within the taxi cab industry. So what's wrong with corporations and entrepreneurs? disrupting industry which were immune to innovation and and was this somehow corporations and entrepreneurs versus industry because i thought they were one and the same yeah i mean that's a great question on one hand right it's not there's nothing inherently wrong with having a new product or a new service or something coming in and improving i mean it's really nice to be able to use a credit card in a taxi. Okay. Um, the problem is the conditions through which that company operates are so insidious, right? I mean, they got rid of any like, um, you know, wage protections, but also thinking about, they don't report any data to the, you know, Uber doesn't report any data to the city or provide accessible rides. I mean, the problem was the thing that came in and disrupted was in many ways, you know, had many negative effects. Um, and sure, had the cab industry ossified, sure, but that's also a result of deregulation, right? It's not a you know another route we could say be like, okay, so the cab industry has a lot of problems. What's another way we could think about this? Could we invest in more public transit so cabs are even less necessary, right? 
Or could we try to increase, you know, investments in the cab industry? Ask, why is it that they are so rusty and not able to innovate, right? A lot of people like to innovate, but you have to have money and resources to do it. You cite many past guests on our show, but in, including a uh, economy scholar Nick Smysik, who uh, arguing the post-2008 uh, recession environment of low interest rates and low rates of return on a wide range of financial assets, investors were incentivized to find returns wherever possible. This strategy involved taking on additional risk by investing in unprofitable and unproven tech companies. For tech companies associated with the gig economy, the economic conditions following the recession were favorable, favorable not only for raising venture capital, but also for finding a workplace among the recently laid off, a workforce amongst the recently laid off, and those otherwise facing a sudden loss of income. So do you think this process will again repeat itself the next time there is an economic crisis? Will investors again be desperate to find investments and cities be desperate to find jobs, leaving workers vulnerable to worsening pay and labor conditions while the power of corporations grow through this continuing expansion of the gig economy? I mean, Chuck, it's so depressing to even ask that question. What do you think? <laughs> I think this is hell. We are speaking with geographer Katie J. Wells, co-author of Disrupting D.C., The Rise of Uber and the Fall of the City, which she co-wrote with Kafiato and Declan Cullen. You also mentioned that uh, the this use of political power is what Uber CEO Travis Kalanick has called principled confrontation and what others have described more evocatively as corporate civil disobedience. And disobedience, in fact, was how Uber entered Washington, D.C. Did Uber break the law entering the D.C. market? And is that part of the playbook? to enter any desired market, even illegally if necessary. And if that is the case, why isn't law enforcement doing something about it? Yeah, I mean, the whole mantra, right, of this industry is, you know, move fast and break things, right? It doesn't move slowly and heal things or fix things or make really thoughtful, you know, careful decisions. Um, it's about asking permission, not for, I'm sorry, asking forgiveness, not permission. Um, so when Uber came in, there was a real, um, effort on the part of only one public agency to, you know, stop it when it came to DC. Um, and that was a taxi commission, which itself had like all kinds of issues and it was limited in its own ways, um, by resources, um, and its politics and history of corruption and racism and ableism. Um, so there really wasn't a strong entity in DC that could, you know, put a stop to Uber. But we can look across the world and look, there are many places in the world we forget where it doesn't exist or it exists in other ways. And by that, I mean, you know, we can look to EU or UK where these companies are required to provide holiday leave, workers pay, death benefits, workers comp. Um, those kind of things are required by other countries, which we've sort of said, haha, don't worry about it. Do you think those making the labor conditions better, making the wages better, do you think that that would help the other aspects of ride sharing that have a negative impact on cities, like the impact that they have on the environment, like the impact that they have on congestion? Does making them better employers solve those other problems? Oh, I don't know that it solves it, but it certainly is a welcome change, right? I mean, there's also the welcome change around data. A lot of other you know, countries require these entities to submit data. They require them so that the policymakers can make really good decisions about, you know, 
Is this a good addition to our city? Maybe Uber, right, is really wonderful. I have a deaf elderly neighbor with no spouse or children. I am thrilled that he is able to get to his doctor's appointments when he needs to, right, and doesn't have to navigate the bus system, which would be really difficult with him given his physical health. Um, like there's nothing inherently wrong with a chauffeur service, right? It's the conditions under which it operates. Now, some of those are labor, but there's also, as we, you know, you mentioned the environmental congest, you know, um, impacts and the question about congestion, like at a city scale, how does this help, you know, us build a kind of place we want to live? And then there is, you know, the bigger impact, right? Which is about, are these companies really fair political actors? Are they inhibiting our ability to, you know, debate things in a fair way? Or are they steamrolling political debate? And I would argue they do the latter. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I want to get to now. But right before we do that, I just want to ask you real quick, you point out that in early June 2012, D.C. legislators uh, pushed back against Uber with the Uber Amendment, a provision proposed by the D.C. Council mandating that fares for Uber sedan service start at five times that of a local taxi. And you add that rather than encourage choice and innovation, the Uber Amendment, according to Kalanick's email, uh, would accomplish the opposite by protecting the local taxi industry from market competition, Kalanick added the council was limiting consumers' choices and blocking innovation. In short, the proposed legislation was anti-business. So was the Uber amendment anti-choice and anti-innovation in your opinion? In your opinion? I mean, that's, um, that's a good question. I mean, I can understand that argument. I think there's a compelling argument to be made in that way, but I think it was... Um, there were so many reasons that the Uber amendment, some of its provisions should have been adopted and that we could have avoided a lot of the issues that we have now had the city council taken a stand and made Uber play by very similar rules to that of the taxi industry, right? They might've agreed that the city council might've agreed had they say, okay, fine, you don't have to have a five times fare, you know, um, multiplier, but we need you to have these folks licensed, right? We need to make sure that you are paying a quarter on each one so we can actually tell how many rides are happening and where they're happening. And is there really transit equity that's happening around this industry? So did Kalanick accurately reflect what the people of Washington, D.C. wanted when it came to Uber? Is this democracy in action or is this something else? Is the is Uber exploiting democracy and using it against itself, against the public good, or is it using it for the public good? I mean, I would think the former. I mean, I think if this is what democracy looks like, if democracy just looks like every consumer arguing for what they want and no other you know, group is taking into consideration, that's not a diversity of voices. That's not a meaningful thing. That's sort of like Citizens United run wild. I mean, that's just whoever can purchase you know, the votes of the population. That's not meaningful debate among different folks who have different interests and needs. And this is what gets us to this new local politics that the gig economy introduced. You write that in the years that followed, D.C.'s initially combative approach to Uber was marked by a stunning reversal. By the end of 2014, just two and a half years later, the D.C. Council had not yet not only yielded to Uber's continued expansion in the city, but also approved legislation that made the city, according to libertarian think tank R Street, the, quote, best place in the country for transport app startups. Uber emerged victorious from the D.C. taxi wars to, quote, Uber investor Shervin Pishavar, the company that had offered a glimpse of a new 
local politics, one in which tech and Silicon Valley's Silicon Valley were exercising newfound muscles at the policy level in real time. And again, as you were pointing out earlier, Malcolm Harris's book, Palo Alto, touches on this in, in extensively. And people can listen to that interview with Malcolm that we did a few months ago at thisishell.com. In your opinion, is this new politics that's being introduced by the gig economy, is that still democracy? And is it any more or less democratic than what preceded the local politics of apps and big tech? Uh, is this uh, democracy? No, I mean, Chuck, do you think it's democracy? No, I don't. No, of course not. I mean, this is nuts. I mean, this is just, you know, whoever is the wealthiest player gets to buy. I mean, this is think of the white colonists coming to settle the land. You know, they're not settling land as much, but they're certainly, you know, buying the rules they want and they're buying the kind of, you know, policymakers they want. I mean, this is not sort of building the kind of place we want to live in. So you you offer a critique of Uber that takes the company's popularity and its ability to inspire allegiance just as seriously as its role in undermining democratic urban uh, governance. Uh, was was this its intent? Is Uber like crypto part of a not a, I'm not saying it's some co- sort of coordinated libertarian campaign, but just another libertarian campaign to challenge, if not overthrow democracy? Is this a silent kind of libertarian coup? by tech corporations through apps to control democracy. I mean, I don't know if it is, but I'll tell you, it looks a lot like it. And I'll be very curious to read the books 10 years from now, if they are able to dig up, dig up, you know, these, these uh, motives. It's certainly the, I mean, on some level, does it even matter if it was the intent, but it certainly looks like the effect is right there. And you also mentioned how rideshare companies, you know, how much they control their drivers' lives. And people, a lot of people think that you have complete autonomy. You have a lot of independence when you're working for Uber. How do rideshare companies decide when their drivers work and when they don't? How are Uber drivers not their own boss determining when and where they want to work, working as much or as little as they want, which is what we are told they're they're supposed to be offered? How is Uber in any way like a typical boss controlling your time? I mean, it would be lovely if it was a typical boss controlling your time. This is even more insidious because the old adage of equal pay for equal work goes right out the window, right? The personalized pay structure of this industry is just wild. And I think the fact that workers are so atomized and isolated, it allows it to seem even harder. And so one of the things that really surprised us about the work, and we followed 40 Uber drivers for five years in the DC area as they moved on and off the app and even through the pandemic, which changed things a bit. Um, in unexpected ways, you know, they, you know, a lot of the workers who, you know, found struggle, which is like almost all of them, right, with the app, that they often internalize their struggles as failures of their own character or skill, as opposed to seeing them as, you know, um, reflections of the system that was set up to make them fail. So they'd say things like, oh, I just wasn't smart enough, as opposed to like, dude, this is like an impossible maze to, you know, to figure out. You uh, so what effect do you think the does the gig economy have on things like consumer choice, entrepreneurship, market competition that were supposed to be spurred on by the gig economy? How what does the gig economy uh, have effect? At, what does it have on uh, consumer choice, entrepreneurship, market competition? Is it more of the same choice, entrepreneurship, and competition, or does the gig economy actually? undermine each, reinforcing the same old economics that it's really nothing new? I mean, I assume it's the latter, but it certainly has a mirage of the former. 
And you also mentioned it's easy to view Uber's promise of choice and innovation as an expression of a quintessentially neoliberal project. Behind the pledge to boost the income of D.C.'s low-wage workers is a simple attempt to secure market dominance. And you Mm -hmm. uh, cite uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, 2019 book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, where she discusses how Uber's rollout in D.C. can be seen as a manifestation of that new surveillance capitalism. So in exchange for jobs... Does the gig economy then demand and acquire municipal power? Are cities willfully giving the cities over to the gig economy in an attempt to try to save those cities? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I actually don't know how much the prospect of underemployment has been a motivator for cities to allow Uber to come in. I think they've been more motivated by the transit question, although I think there's sort of certainly we have uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C. has on more than one occasion celebrated Uber as a a way to offer um, a road to the middle class, which is just absolutely not supported by any data around this, you know, kind of a job. But so I I don't know if that labor argument is really just sort of like um, dressing on the real argument or the real you know desire to you know partner with these entities, um, but it's certainly a lot of policymakers say oh but people are making good money it's a second job I mean that story circulates. Uber's popular and it has provided jobs in times of desperation. Do you think users recognize the consequences of their actions and choose convenience? over whatever outcomes the gig economy may have on a city or its citizens or their neighbors? Do users not see what problems the gig economy causes? No, I think, I mean, I, I mean, certainly I'm cynical. I think some of them won't, but I think that a large number of people do feel really icky or weird about it, right? I think people do wonder, huh, what is this doing to the city I live in? What kind of jobs are these, right? I mean, our goal, and we sort of end the book with this point, which is like, Many friends and family have said to us, like, so should I stop using Uber? And on one hand, it's like, oh, my God, are you still using it? But the other hand, we want to say, you know what? We understand why it makes sense for a lot of people, right? We are like, do I have an iPhone? I do, Chuck, right? Am I talking to you on a MacBook Air? I am. Like, we live in this world and we use the conveniences that it affords us and that it requires us to use. And so I don't want to belittle anyone who works for Uber, right? Who drives for them because they need to make ends meet. And honestly, if I had to get my dad to dialysis and my kid to school on time, I mean, it's very difficult to find a job in which you're not already algorithmically managed. And, you know, you show up at Marshall's or Outback Steakhouse and you can't, you know, control your schedule. So I, I want to be sympathetic toward all the people for whom Uber makes sense, um, whether they're as a consumer or as a worker. Um, But I still hope Um, that folks who have the capacity and ability and time and leisure, right, to um, imagine otherwise can really, you know, think about like, huh, what would it mean to have Uber not be a solution to my life? And you you quote geographer David Harvey saying, even the most resolute and avant-garde municipal socialists will find themselves in the end playing the capitalist game and performing as agents of discipline for the very process they're trying to resist when it comes to city leaders who are trying to fight back against this kind of local political ideal of the gig economy. And you add that municipal resources are directed toward enhancing the local business climate and attracting capital investment. Meanwhile, social services aimed at supporting poor and working class residents invariably take a backseat. In some instances, the active uh, presence and visibility of the urban poor themselves become a problem and threaten the business climate. Here, the response is 
the cleansing of public spaces and the promotion of quality of life policing. Quality of life policing is, you know, heavily uh, have heavy policing, uh, normally non-criminal activities such as congregating and or drinking in public spaces, as well as minor offenses such as graffiti. So uh, what is the impact of a business-oriented city, this new local politics of the gig economy, on policing as an outcome of the quality of life focus? There has been an increase in police violence. Is that in any way linked, do you think, to a more business-oriented city? Heck, what do you think? I think that you're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to imagine what Ruth Wilson Gilmore, if someone would, you know, have to say to that response. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we are, I think that urban democracy is under duress. I think that there's certainly, if there is violence, right, that there, and there is an uptick in DC this year, um, especially in juvenile homicides. I mean, there, there constantly are choices, right, that we have about how do we make our city safer? And certainly, you know, the route that I don't think we should take, right, is the argument toward more policing, more, you know, business-friendly climate, right? I mean, pursuing, you know, um, a new capitalist solution at all costs, right? I grew up in Northeast Ohio in the 1980s, and there was a promise in Cleveland that a stadium was going to cure everything. If we just get a big enough player to come in and build something, right? It was sort of like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. And like we know time and time again, like stadiums don't save cities, but building public transit, building worker co-ops, right? Investing in other kinds of um, infrastructure that can care for us, right? Works. And so I do feel hope when I think about the Green New Deal. I do feel um, that there are folks who are willing to look at the gig economy or look at questions around policing and violence and say, you know, maybe we should try something different. You also mentioned Uber strategic advisor David Plouffe, who was also the uh, campaign director for the 2000, I believe 2012 campaign for Barack Obama. And you write how in 2015, before an audience assembled at a D.C.-based tech incubator, he touted Uber's role in advancing the economic prospects of American workers. He even uh, suggested that Uber was going to bring about tra- bring transportation to what he was calling transportation deserts. And uh, that, you know, Uber would do this, unlike uh, bringing a factory to a town, without the kind of tax breaks and other incentives other businesses insist upon before entering a market. Did Uber bring about the end of transportation deserts, and do they require far fewer incentives than uh, than any other business would? I mean, it's so wild, right? I mean, that was... Anyway, I'm just laughing at David Plouffe's, I mean, it's just, you know, here, this was a democratic, this is a democratic party's, you know, spokesperson, Um, you know, this idea of don't worry, we can do this for cheap if we just let private capital come in and solve our problems. No, it is not reduced transit deserts. And some would argue it's even, you know, created worse ones. Um, And no, it has not been the savior to places. Um, no, it is not moving us toward a place that we really want to be or need to be. Um, and I would argue even I think the Democratic Party is coming around to sort of the belief that David Plouffe and folks like that were wrong. I think we're seeing more critical talk now than a decade ago about the impact of these you know, entities on places and on city budgets. So did- I can't. I can't tell you the number of workers, right, in our study, as well as others, right, who are receiving public assistance. 
I mean, these are jobs that do not pay well, let alone, you know, forget the all the environmental impacts of all these cars on the road. So often we seem to be choosing market solutions over any kind of democratic solutions. When it comes to Uber, did we, and I don't know, I'm using this word specifically because if you don't want to agree with me using this word, that's fine. Did we choose convenience over democracy? Yes. Absolutely. And we still continue to do it, right? These com- this company finally, after burning 30-some billion dollars, now just turned supposedly a profit. Although if you if, if listeners are interested, I wholly recommend Hubert Horan, H-O-R-A-N, his recent take that actually that profit might not actually be a real profit and it may not be replicable in the future. All right, I'm going to look that up, Hubert Horan. Uh, so is Uber a direct threat to democracy? Does ride-sharing need to end or can, as happened last week, can it be reformed, tamed, reined in? As was reported, the Minneapolis City Council has approved a new city ordinance that aims to provide greater protections and increased pay rates for rideshare drivers. The ordinance, which passed 7 to 5, very close, aims to guarantee drivers work make at least $15 an hour, which is the city's minimum wage, not the living wage. Can ridesharing be done in a way that does not threaten democracy? I think there absolutely are examples across the world of chauffeur services that do not threaten democracy. Can ride sharing, as we know it in the ride hailing companies in the U.S., given their political histories, be reformed? I don't know. That seems like a pretty big ask, right? But I think that watching what's happening in Minneapolis, and I'm not sure, Chuck, if it is settled yet. There is some question about a mayor's veto in much the same way as the state um, of Minnesota vetoed, you know, a similar provision um, earlier this summer. I, um, I am, I am not sure, but I think that what we have to look when we see, what we have to see when we see what's happening in Minneapolis is that there is resistance, and we have to grow it, and we should listen very carefully to what those folks are saying, which is, you know, what this isn't really compatible with our, you know, vision of a good life. One last question for you, Katie. We have been speaking with Katie Wells, who is Katie J. Wells, who is co-author of Disrupting D.C., The Rise of Uber and the Fall of the City, which she co-wrote with Kafi Otto and Declan Cullen. One last question for you, Katie, and it's what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Or our audience will hate your response. You write, Uber, especially in its appeals to flexibility, has played on workers' expectations. In addition, it has worked to structure the job in ways that limit collective action, that individuate work, and that lower expectations concerning what the job should provide. We show how the, you and your co-authors show how the very strategies that Uber has employed to manage its workforce have also at certain moments unintentionally laid the groundwork for solidarity among workers. So, Katie, has the gig economy to any extent extent turned all of our jobs into jobs within the gig economy? That is, they have the same expectation of always being available at any time your job ending and relatively no benefits or security or any kind of you know good pay whatsoever have all of our jobs to a certain extent become gig economy jobs whether we are in a traditional job place or not i would say yes right we are moving that way if we aren't already there 
is that what you think is our future? Everybody's going to be living in. The- well, I don't know if it's our future. I'm really bad at predicting it, but I can tell you it's been the past. Yeah. Certainly, we can look at the last 40 years and we can see the windling of worker protections, worker rights, solidarity, you know, spaces in which we can get together and imagine other futures. And, um, and so if the past is any indicator, then my goodness, um, we better hope to shift otherwise. But there, I do think there is a hot labor summer. I do think that there are conversations that are happening now that I couldn't have imagined 10 years ago. And that gives me a teeny bit of comfort. Well, on that note, I cannot thank you enough, Katie, for being on the show today. This is a fascinating conversation. This is a really uh, enlightening book. And uh, I just want to apologize for asking you to make so many predictions because I know our guests always hate making predictions. It it, it will drive a historian or economist crazy. And uh, Mm. so I apologize for that. Uh, Absolutely forgiven. Um, Uh, Chuck, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. I appreciate it. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because if it was, we wouldn't be talking about the gig economy and platforms like Uber as a threat to democracy, a threat that seeks to impose a libertarian corporate-run hellish nightmare upon all of us until, if unchecked, they eventually commodify every aspect of our lives, finally turning us into something to be bought and sold without any rights, no longer human, just widgets to benefit the bottom line of the few. If we're talking about the gig economy ushering in corporate authoritarianism, you know this is not the media. This is Hell. Right now, you can show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives and insights you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you, for you, absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com, including our conversation with Malcolm Harris. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and guess what? Clicking on support where you can find all of the ways you can help out your good friends here at This Is Hell. And somebody has to, because you know that to everyone in the media, like I said, this is hell. Most recently here, or most recently on Patreon, last Thursday, August 17th, it was all about what we don't know about our past, our present, or our future. And we shared a classic conversation from 2009 about... Pakistan's America problem, which seems to be continuing to this day as it has been reported that the Biden administration provoked the Pakistani military to remove the nation's democratically selected prime minister from office. Yes, it appears according to documents the U.S. played a role in yet another military coup to overthrow a democratically elected leader, also known as a coup. So, first I talked about being on vacation and getting stoned out of my mind while reading the first few pages of David Graeber's and David Wengrow's The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. I fantasized about having David Wengrow as a guest for 12 weeks or 12 consecutive months in a row to discuss each chapter of his book. We even asked Patreon patrons what they thought of the idea of doing a marathon, a series that would cover an entire year or three whole months of just interviews about The Dawn of Everything. 
and the response has been overwhelmingly supportive on Patreon. Bryant, Richard, Tynan, Samuel, Christina, and Hugh all say yes. George H. calls it a great idea. Uh, Christina writes that, yes, and I still hear your show accidentally on the radio when I'm driving. Can you please help me move into the 21st century and tell me how to find out when and where these episodes will be aired? Yes, we have a Patreon patron who doesn't know you can listen to the show at thisishell.com. Go figure. Nathan calls it a very nice idea, would happily tune in for this. Mark C. responds, amazing idea. I would be very interested in listening to that series of interviews with Wengro on the dawn of everything. Dean says, that would be fantastic. Neil says, great idea, prefer once a week to once a month, but would listen whenever. Craig says, fantastic idea, like a book club. I guess this means I'll need to read the book, though. Hmm, if only there were a podcast series I could listen to instead of reading this book. Eric says, tells, uh, tells us he's about to start reading The Dawn of Everything anyway. He had just finished uh, David Graeber's book on 500 years of debt. He writes, if you do this, I'll hold off and read it along. Crazy good timing and a great idea. Andrew says, this would be awesome. Old Grouch, Grouch says, don't know, but I'll be there if you play it. We had other people like Nat and Wallum saying that they would love it. Uh, Ferris Buhler saying, effing A. Hell yes, please. Gregory K. saying, now you're really using Patreon. Go for it. So we are going to reach out to David Wengro to check on his availability for a series of interviews. Now, everyone, do not get your hopes up. Getting anyone to do a dozen pre-scheduled 45-minute interviews is a huge ask. We also ask Patreon patrons to tell us what their favorite local community, college, or otherwise independent radio station is, and we will contact that station to see if they are interested in picking up This Is Hell. Imagine your neighbors accidentally stumbling on This Is Hell. Thanks to Steve, Dean, Yairo, Joel, Braden, and everyone who has shared their favorite local independent radio station with us. And you can do the same by emailing it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. To be part of those conversations on a possible Dawn of Everything series of interviews and to share your favorite local radio station, you can also just become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell also on patreon last week we shared a may 9th 2009 interview with anatole levin visiting professor at king's college london and senior fellow at the quincy institute for responsible statecraft anatole had just posted the article pakistan's american problem which as i explained on patreon is an ongoing problem for pakistan to this day as there is non-stop bipartisan U.S. support for the Pakistani military and not democracy ruling Pakistan. It's kind of recent historical context that helps in having a better understanding of the U.S. role in Pakistan. It's a recent apparent military coup provoked by the Biden administration. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a This Is Hell patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest Patreon patrons, John B., Sam T., and Essential. Thanks, John, Sam, and Essential. Will, what is this week's question from hell, and how have our listeners responded on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And there's been some activity on Patreon. Sweet. Samuel P. (laughs) says, it's just poop. <laughs> Whoa! Yikes! Uh, old Grouch says, <laughs> "I'm sorry, it's uh, a funny word." Old Grouch says, "New York City goes bankrupt again. Trump wins the presidency from prison. 
The big island Hawaii catches fire. Government bonds become worthless. Even the inflation protected ones. And I am still alive. It's <laughs> very specific. I think you could have just cut off all the stuff at the beginning, just to have the answer be, I am still alive. That yeah. would be the appropriate answer. I mean, what can go worse than living in hell? Exactly. Um, Essential responds with caramelized onions and Dijon. <laughs> That's disgusting. That's the worst thing that could happen? Dan K. <laughs> Reincarnation, <laughs> which is That's great. That's really good. That is solid. We have some witty listeners. Um, Jefferson backwards. Uh, We're not calling him Nostrafez anymore. Nostrafez. I don't know. I go back and forth I, on that. Yeah. I only recently figured out it was Jefferson backwards. <laughs> um, the creation of an anti-profit party challenging the media's two-party system election cycle triggers a deep state shutdown of the internet causing widespread pandemonium here in the heart of the empire which is blamed on Russia using some type of nuclear weapon so they legit invade China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela and Mexico and North Korea and Iran ETC um this all fails spectacularly, so the crazy-ass deep state nuke themselves, Dr. Strangelove styles, something like that, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Thanks for the, pro- for the qualifier at the end. I didn't I know. know if it was probable or not. <laughs> I need to see the regression model on that one. Um, Any more? Uh, one more. Okay. Andy E., I get what I think I want. <laughs> I want to know more. Wow. I want to know what he thinks he wants. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us, exit at us, whatever you want to call that stupid platform. You can leave it on our Discord or our Patreon page. However you leave it to us, you can even email it. Chuck at thisishell.com. However you do, we will be reading your answer on air, but we and we must have your answer by the end of this week's show, as we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Uh, will, what is Jeff talking about during the Moment of Truth this week? Jeff meets the Perseids. Oh yeah, that's right. He meets the Perseids. And now it's the return of Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself who gives us the historical context, historical or historial it's an interesting word I've been working on. Who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. In his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. The Past Inside the Present. So we have a policy here in hell to not go chasing headlines. We let other people do that. But sometimes some things happen, and at least I, for one, just can't help myself but talk about it. In a way, this is also not so much chasing headlines as the event in question is already getting pushed out by the next thing. Also, I just a few weeks ago finished a four-part series on this exact history. But this is my segment, and I get to do what I want. So today, I want to talk about the history of Lahaina on the island of Maui. You may have heard of it. 
the place that just burned to the ground and the worst wildfire in American history. I want to explore today why Lahaina burning down is such a big deal to Hawaiian people, to the Kanaka Maoli, uh, the native folks of the Hawaiian island. As an aside, Kanaka means people and Maoli means from here, which shows the close relation of Polynesian languages to one another since Maori, as in Aotearoa uh, or New Zealand, means the same thing uh, from here. The inverse of Kanaka Maoli, uh, the people from here, is Haole, which basically means not from here. And that's basically what they call us. Some aggrieved white folks will try to tell you that Hawaiians call you a slur when they say that you're a haole, but that's simply not true. They just say that you're not from here. Anyway, I also want to highlight how the history of Lahaina and the history of American exploitation of the Hawaiian Islands directly contributed to this disaster. Which was, as I should emphasize, not a natural disaster. There is nothing natural about a power line setting invasive grasses on fire and that fire getting whipped up by super strong winds that are directly linked to human-caused global warming. But let's start at the beginning. Lahaina literally means merciless sun. Legend has it that in the olden days, before white people made the islands their stomping grounds, a local chief was overheard by some of his people cursing the sun on a particularly hot day at this place, and apparently that stuck as the name for, well, Lahaina. The village that became known by this name then served as the residence for the rulers of Maui, both for local chiefs who ruled over stretches of the island and also for chiefs who ruled over the whole island. Then in the 1790s, after King Kamehameha the Great united the Hawaiian Islands into the Kingdom of Hawaii, uh, he chose Lahaina as his residence because his favorite wife, Kahumanu, was born on Maui. Um, and also because Lahaina is a relatively central location in the islands, and because Lahaina had already been the seat of government for Maui itself. Kamehameha had uh, the first European-style structure uh, in the islands built there, the so-called Brick Palace. The palace itself no longer stands, so it was not destroyed in the fires, but the foundations of the place were rediscovered in 1964. Lahaina was the resident of the House of Kamehameha for several generations, but it was only designated capital of the Hawaiian Kingdom in 1820 by Kamehameha II. The town remained capital of the kingdom for 25 years, and two Kamehamehas uh, ruled from there. And during the time that it was the capital of the island kingdom, Kamehameha III transformed the kingdom into a constitutional monarchy from from an absolutist monarchy. So that's kind of important. That's why it's important for uh, the history of the islands, um, for the history of the Hawaiian people. The first constitution of the Hawaiian kingdom was signed in Lahaina, and the first legislature of the kingdom met here. Then this same third Kamehameha moved the seat of government from Lahaina to Honolulu on Oahu in 1845. And while Honolulu grew to be a much bigger and arguably more important place, Lahaina remained a bustling harbor town. Starting in the 1820s, whaling ships that plowed the waters of the northwestern coast of North America began calling in Lahaina, and over the following 50 years, these whalers became crucial to the town's growth and prosperity. But the constant presence of these men also caused conflict, especially with the missionaries. Christian missionaries had started to come to Lahaina in the 1820s as well. The whalers then blamed the missionaries for the Hawaiian kingdom banning alcohol and prostitution for a while in the 1820s. 
1827, a riot among the whalers broke out that culminated in a whaling ship in the harbor, then targeting the home of a particularly hated missionary with its cannons. Um, and then over the year uh, 1846, almost 400 whaling ships anchored in the harbor. The 1846 census listed the population of Lahaina with 3,445 Hawaiians, 112 foreigners, 600 sailors uh, living in 882 grass houses, 155 adobe houses, and 59 buildings made of stone and wood. In 1829, missionaries built the first school west of the Rocky Mountains in the town. The missionaries also built Wailo Church, the church that served the Hawaiian court while Lahaina was residence and capital, and many of the early rulers of the Hawaiian kingdom are buried here. The missionaries also began publishing Kalama Hawaii, the first newspaper printed in Olelo Hawaii, the native Hawaiian language. And this should give you, dear listeners, something of an idea of why Lahaina on the west coast of the island of Maui is a very important place for the native Hawaiians. What stings to a degree that is really difficult for us Haole to understand is the loss of Na'akaine or Maui Cultural and Research Center. Uh, this cultural and research center housed numerous priceless artifacts of the Kanaka Maoli, as well as documents used by these native Hawaiians to support land claims in court successfully. Um, but beyond these very material losses, this cultural center was also the heart of the local native community, and all of that is now gone. And now that we have established that, let's look at the historical reasons for the devastating fire, especially how it happened the, that Lahaina was dry as tinder when, in the 19th century, the town was surrounded by wetlands. By the 1870s, the whaling industry was on its deathbed due to petroleum outcompeting whale oil. Talk about pest chasing cholera. Uh, making things worse, uh, making things worse, making things worse. In 1871, more than two thirds of the whaling ships operating out of the Hawaiian Islands were trapped in the ice in the Arctic Ocean after being surprised by an early winter. And most of the ships uh, then got lost at sea. After this incident, Lahaina largely reverted back to its previous existence as a small country town. But change was already brewing, with a couple of haoles beginning to convert lands outside the town into plantations for sugarcane. Out of this came the Pioneer Mill Company, which over time grew to become Maui's largest sugar producer. Other agricultural producers followed, especially the Maui Pineapple Company. And neither pineapple nor sugarcane are native to the Hawaiian Islands, and when grown at scale, both require substantial amounts of water. In the late 1800s, haole planters had become extremely influential in the islands since they managed to wrest large plots of land from the indigenous people. The native Hawaiian world was in disarray at that time since more than two-thirds of the native population had at this point died due to imported European diseases, which made it all the easier for haoles to swoop in and convince locals to give up their land rights. And when the land needed to grow crops, they next came for the water rights. Large amounts of water were diverted towards the plantations, which lastingly altered the water systems of the islands. The wetlands around Lahaina then dried up. And then fast forward 100 and then some years to just before the present day. Agriculture is now the third largest employer in the Hawaiian Islands, right behind the military, which is right behind tourism in the number one spot. <laughs> 
But agriculture in the islands is declining. This leaves large tracts of land that were previously used to grow sugarcane and pineapples untended. And what took these areas over was another crop that was also grown on Maui, guinea grass. This grass is also not native to the islands. It was introduced as fodder for cattle when some of the plantation owners dabbled in ranching. This grass is highly invasive and in dry conditions turns into dangerous fuel for fires, which is exactly what happened in Lahaina. A drought dried out the grass, producing plenty of fuel for a fire, and then mismanagement at Hawaii Electric resulted in trees not getting cut properly to ensure that no flora was growing onto power lines. And then strong winds from a nearby hurricane knocked some power lines down, sparks flew, and before you knew it, the first capital of the Hawaiian kingdom burned to a crisp. And the people who suffer most from all of this are the Kanaka Maoli, the people of Hawaii, because housing is already extremely precarious in the islands, because Native Hawaiians are in a similar situation to Native Americans. From generations of exploitation, they lack access to intergenerational wealth, they are frequently discriminated against, and are generally seen as something of a nuisance by Haole Industries making money in the Hawaiian Islands. Now a town of 12,000 people has become homeless overnight by no fault of their own. Thousands are still missing with several hundred confirmed dead, most of them children and the elderly. Rebuilding Lahaina will likely only benefit the outsiders since Hawaiian politics are dominated by those seeking to further exploit the islands. The Hawaiian islands may be paradise on earth, but for the people from there, we have managed to make them hell. And in the case of Lahaina, quite literally. So what can we do about this? So this is not your usual past inside the present ending, since we're now firmly in the present and possibly even in the future. First of all, let's pay attention to what Native Hawaiians want. For the most part, they want to become independent of the tourism industry, and they are also not too keen on the ludicrously large military presence on the islands. What us Haoles can do about that is another question. Uh, the Native Hawaiians are just like so many of us victims of capitalism. So first of all, we need to cultivate solidarity. And if you cannot be dissuaded from visiting the islands, educate yourself and try to frequent as many Kanaka-owned businesses as you possibly can while you are there. Also, don't be a dick and respect the rules and respect the culture. Don't touch the wildlife. Don't take lava rocks home. Don't tread on, tread on paths you're not allowed on. And if you can't afford to, donate money. I posted a couple of links on our Facebook page. Or just look up Hawaii Community Foundation and donate to them. Or go to Lahaina underscore Ohana underscore Venmo on Instagram, where you can donate directly to individual families in need. A lot of people have lost everything. And now that the story is fading from the headlines, the support will dry up. So let's send the people of Maui some more much-needed love. And uh, yeah, and that's that's it for me for today. So uh, I got a great story for you real quick. Uh, uh, I got from another past re uh, producer here on This Is Hell, Kate O'Donnell, a friend of hers who lives in Hawaii, went to the area to try to help rescue people from the burning buildings, to just try to help out in any way that they could. They got to the area and there was a police barricade and they said, nobody can go beyond this point whatsoever. So he didn't know what to do. So he stole a police car, drove into Lahaina, rescued six people and drove them out. 
That's how you do it. That's how you do it, my friend. That's how you do it. Great to hear your voice again. Glad to hear you back on the show. Check out that Traverse City record, Eagle weekend supplement from a couple of weeks ago about the okay. indigenous history of Traverse City. It's oh, well, pretty yeah. incredible. So check that out. All right. I'll talk yeah, to you soon. All right. All right. See you. So, Will, who are our upcoming guests here on this week's show? Upcoming guests include Lisa M. Corrigan, who wrote the Nation article, The Evisceration of a Public University. West Virginia University is being gutted, and it's a preview for what's in store for higher education. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. Lisa is a professor of communication and director of gender studies at the University of Arkansas. I'm sure that department is popular with that state's politicians. Um, uh, contributing editor at the Baffler, essayist George Skialab. I'm going to go Shah. Go Shalaba. Shalaba, thank you. Um, we'll discuss his latest article, Kudzu, The Kingdom of Private Equity. Ooh, I like that title. I know, I do too. He only <laughs> mentions Kudzu once. It very, was very confusing to me. Confusing at best. Uh, we'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of, of truth. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This week, I hit for $45 on a scratcher. Which nice. Is, I mean, that's great. But the fact that I felt I needed to buy a scratcher is just a reminder. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>